going to begin our study of Philippians by not reading Philippians. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm curious if any of you have ever known someone who exudes joy. Um, maybe she has a super bubbly personality, or maybe he just seems to find the fun in every single circumstances. Maybe you've met somebody, I can at least think of one person in my life that I've walked away from conversation with and thought, is that person real? Is, that can't be true. She can't be that exuberant all the time, right? Like, she's not real. Um, and it's probably true. That person that I know, she probably isn't like that all the time, right? Because none of us ex- escape from all, all pain and all hurt in our lives, right? Um, as individuals, um, I mean, today's September 11th. If you were living here in the United States, you probably remember exactly where you were 21 years ago, right? None of us escape from pain and suffering. None of us escape from these experiences, whether as individuals or as groups. Um, If I can be completely transparent with you this morning, my throat is a little bit sore because every single thing this morning was a power struggle with my almost four-year-old, right? And, And Tyler having a word about feeling a little unworthy, you know, like that happens to all of us. Like, man, this morning was a power struggle and I could have done better, right? The Holy Spirit, I could have leaned in more to the Holy Spirit and done better with my daughter this morning. We all go through things like that. Um, But despite pain and suffering, for some people, it seems like their depth of joy surpasses everything else. And so today, I get to introduce um, what we will be studying in God's Word this fall at Modesto Foursquare for the the next few months, um, and that is the book of Philippians. And joy is one of its key themes. And so the word rejoice, it occurs in this book at least 16 times in various forms, in only four brief chapters. It's an average of four times a chapter. That's a lot. That's a lot of using the word joy or rejoice. But what's important to note is that the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter was not in a situation that would bring joy to very many people. Um, This is known as one of his prison letters, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, because he wrote it while under arrest. And despite that, one Bible scholar said that this letter to the Philippians is like Paul's prison song. Um... And today, I'm going to kind of put on an invest... This is what I like to do when we start a new book. Put on an investigative journalist hat. And um, we're going to answer together the five W questions. The who, what, when, where, and why before we actually dive into this letter. But I want to give us some context and explain the significance of even calling this letter a prison song And it's significant because of how this church even started here in Philippi. Um, So rather than starting in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read almost the entire chapter of Acts 16, which is pretty long, so you have to bear with me there. Um, And we're going to see the origin story of the church at Philippi. So you can turn there now if you'd like, Acts chapter 16, 
And um, I'm going to skip the first eight verses, so I'll give you a little recap of what's happening here. So in the preceding verses, in verses 1 through 8, Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey. Um, They are traveling through Asia, and they're going through the space that is today modern Turkey. And Luke, he may have also been with them because the book of Acts is written by Luke, and a lot of these phrases and the way that it's written is from the first, first person. We hear the word we, so it, it's kind of a possibility that Luke is there with them. Um, and so Paul, Silas, maybe Luke, they're traveling through what is now Turkey, and they are sharing the gospel with people. And um, they pick up Timothy, who at this point is a young man. He may have even been in his teens or his early 20s at this point. And he has a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And he becomes a disciple of Christ. And he comes along with them on their missionary journey. And they, they bring him. And they go through Phrygia and Galatia. And they even try to go further north into Bithynia. But Paul, um, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is preventing them. So like their, their path is getting blocked and um, they're being, being prevented from going to certain places and this is where we pick up the story. So I'll begin reading Acts chapter 16 starting in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrate sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. All right, that was the long chapter. Um, but this is the story of how the church at Philippi is started. On this missionary journey, Paul has a vision that he needs to go to Macedonia. Do other people have visions of people like saying, come to, come to Modesto. We need your help. I don't have dreams like that, but I, I know some people still do. Um, and so Paul and his companions, they go. And upon arriving, they go to the river to pray. And they share the gospel with the women who are there praying by the river. And this woman, Lydia, who's a wealthy merchant who trades in purple cloth, she's already a worshiper of God. But God opens her heart even more to hear this message of who Jesus is, to hear the message Paul shares. And she and her household, they're baptized. And then she offers for them to come live at her house. Come stay with me. And um, this is the birth of a church. In church history and church tradition, it's believed that Lydia was the one who housed this church for a very long time in her home. Um, and then sometime later, we're not sure how long, some estimate that this group, that Paul and his companions stayed at Philippi for about three months, um, so it, maybe they stayed there for three months, just continuing to preach. So maybe about three months later, Paul, he casts a, de a demonic spirit out of this fortune-telling girl. A girl who, she was actually walking around and telling everybody to listen to them, but 
still annoying because Paul knew that this was a, a demon possessing this girl, right? Um, so finally, very annoyed, he says in the name of Jesus Christ, out, out of this girl. And of course, the girl's owners are furious because that was their moneymaker. And so their, their accusations, they just escalate. You know, they seize Paul and Silas. They bring them before the authorities. And not only they, but a bunch of other people in the city say, oh yeah, Paul and Silas, they've been stirring stuff up around here and telling us about things that are not Roman. Um, and they're thrown into prison. And this is where the reference to a song, a prison song, or a song of joy comes from. As they're sitting in their cell, what do they do? They don't complain. I mean, not that we see here in Scripture. They're not complaining. They're not raging. They're not plotting revenge or pitying themselves. What are they doing? Paul and Silas are sitting in prison praying and singing hymns to God while all the other prisoners can hear them. And then this violent earthquake happens, and it swings open the doors. What I love about this is those doors swinging open, they create, they create an opening for freedom and for escape. But it's not Paul and Silas who are freed. Instead, the jailer is the one who gets to experience true freedom in this moment because he's frightened that those prisoners are going to escape or have already escaped, and he's about to kill himself. That's how serious allowing escape would have been. But Paul stops him, and he says, no, we're all still here. We're all present. And perhaps the jailer has heard why Paul is here, why Paul and Silas are here. Maybe he's heard whispers of what they've been preaching around his city in the past few months. And so he comes in and he asks them, how can I be saved? And Paul tells them how to believe. And then the jailer receives Christ. And all the other people in his household do too. And then he takes Paul and Silas and he washes their wounds. Because remember, they were severely flogged. So he goes and washes their wounds and then then the whole house is baptized, okay? And he brings Paul and Silas to his home and he feeds them a meal. And the amazing thing is all of this happens before daybreak. <laughs> Baptism in the middle of the night. In the dark of the night, baptism for this whole household. Such an incredible transformation. And I imagine that this guard and his family join the fellowship that meets at Lydia's house. And it's shortly after this that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and maybe Luke, they continue on their journey. We know from Acts chapter 20 that Paul visited Philippi at least one other time. Um, we think that there may have been a third time that's not recorded in the Bible, um, but it seems like maybe he visited them twice more. And then about 10 years later, 10 years after the church's start, Paul writes this letter of Philippians that we're going to study here at Modesto Foursquare Church. So this is how the church in Philippi began. 
And this is only the first week of our study. Um, But as we begin, I wanted us to see how that church started. And I also want us to get a little more context by answering those five W questions. And so um, if you're taking notes, you don't have to be. But if you are, we're going to start with who. Um, So... The who of this, this letter, as I've already said, was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And Paul identifies himself in verse 1, and he also mentions Timothy as well. So Paul and Timothy, they were such a strong unit in ministry. They had such a strong partnership in ministry that Timothy's included, although we don't think Timothy wrote the book of Philippians. Um, He may have helped as some kind of scribe or secretary, though. Um, Some of you may be familiar that there are scholars, both secular and Christian, who debate over several letters that are attributed to Paul in the New Testament. There are questions about his tone and writing style and the timelines, and there are experts, right, who are divided over whether certain letters are truly Pauline or just pseudo-Pauline. They think, oh, this kind of looks and sounds like Paul, but something seems a little bit off. Um, So maybe you've heard nothing about that. That's okay. But I can tell you that as a 19-year-old religious studies student (laughs) at a formerly Methodist but primarily secular university, this topic, it really shook me. It shook me a lot. And I had to wrestle through that and pray through that at 19 and figure out what do I what do I think about the Bible and its accuracy and its like how how can I trust it? Um, Whether if there's division or debate about all of this. And this is the conclusion the Holy Spirit brought me to um, as I wrestled was do I believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in the church and its leaders over the course of four centuries while they did the slow work of canonizing the Bible? Do I believe that as they questioned and prayed and listened to the Holy Spirit that when they decided what would belong in our modern-day Bibles, do I believe that an infallible God was directing fallible human steps? That was the question I had to think through. And the Lord brought the answer to my heart. Yes, I do. I believe that even though all of us are human and we all make mistakes, that the Holy Spirit was at work in the people who helped not just write, you know, not just Paul, but the people who decided, yes, this is God's word for us. So Pauline, pseudo-Pauline, to me, At that point, I mean, I still think Paul, right? But no matter the debates, God was in. God was in the process of us getting the word, right? He made sure that we would get it and be able to read it. And so all of that to say that that might bring you some comfort about Philippians and also... Maybe that was pointless because Philippians is not one of the disputed letters anyway. (laughs) 
pretty much everybody's in agreement that this one is 100% Paul. So, um, yeah, the Lord was in us receiving his word. Also with this letter, um, it is mentioned and accredited in some letters written by early church leaders. They're, they're names that you might recognize, but if we're being completely honest, um, us Protestants aren't always up on our church history, especially when it comes to pre-Martin Luther, right? Pre-Reformation, we don't always know all the names of the early church leaders. Um, but the book of Philippians is mentioned by Romanus, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Irenaeus, and it's also quoted by Alexandritus, Tertullian, and Clemens. So, Lots of early church leaders thought this was God's word, and they quoted this book and mentioned this book. They knew that the Lord was speaking through the letter to the Philippians. So the other half of who is not just Paul, but Paul's audience. And so um, the audience is the church at Philippi. And that may have still included Lydia and the jailer, and it also included some other people by name. We have the name Epaphroditus, and this is a man whom Paul is going to send back to the church with this letter. We have two women named Euodia and Syntyche, and these are women that he calls out by name and pleads with them to find unity in Christ. They were having some kind of conflict. And then there are many others here in the, in the city of Philippi that I imagine are following Jesus now. At this point, there may have there weren't necessarily formal offices of deacon and elder, but Paul mentions deacons and elders by name. So there was at least a loose structure there of church leadership. And Paul says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that he writes to all God's holy people. So no one from this church was excluded from its reading. So we'll move on to what. Um, in this letter, we're going to see several things. We will see that Paul prays for and thanks this church. We're going to see him report on his current, circumstance, current circumstances, which he's in jail. He wants them to know that. And we're going to see him encourage the church to stand firm in their faith and to stand against false teachers. We're going to read one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible in chapter 2 about Christ's pre-existence, that he was before. And this, this, basically like this poem about how Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself, and then he's exalted above all. And then we're going to see Paul address some rivalries and some perfectionism. And in all of this, we're going to hear him continuously express his joy and gratitude. It's the joy letter. When? Um, we estimate that this letter was written sometime between 60 and 63 AD. And this is because we know that it was written from prison. Um, and because we have a guess at which prison sentence it was that he was serving when he wrote it, um, that's how we get the 60 to 63 AD timeline. So that brings us to where? Paul is writing from prison. Um, he makes the church aware of it in chapter 1. And amazingly, what he shares is that 
his imprisonment has made the gospel spread even more. Like, you might feel sad for me, but this is all the opportunity that God has opened up because I'm here. I also love that this wouldn't have come as a surprise to the Philippians. Why? Because how did the jailer come to know Jesus? Paul and Silas in prison, right? God had already used this move of believers in prison spreading the gospel wider. So there are two or three prison terms that Paul served where it would have been long enough for him to write these letters. Um, So we think that he was imprisoned in Ephesus around 53 to 55 AD, and then in Caesarea from about 57 to 59. But from everything I read and research, the favored and agreed-upon location for this imprisonment is Rome. Um, And Paul is there in Rome under house arrest. You can read about that in Acts 28, verses 14 through 31. Um, He was there in Rome from about 60 to 63. And the reason that we know that this is probably where he was is because of the way he talks about being able to reach and speak to the palace guard. Um, And also, he seems to have a little bit of freedom to roam around and to preach the gospel. And so that freedom under arrest, kind of freedom, semi-freedom, is sort of in line with that idea of house arrest rather than like being in a closed cell. And so this prison sentence was in the early 60s, and we think that Philippians probably is toward the end, end of his time in Rome, this first imprisonment in Rome, because it seems like from the things he says that, his, that they're about to make a decision about his acquittal or his execution, right? So he's, like, he's facing freedom or death right now. Freedom or death. the other half of um, where, we're on where, right? Yeah. Is the city of Philippi itself. So we read in Acts that Philippi was the leading city in Macedonia. That is now northern Greece. So this church was first planted, um, was the first planted in all of Europe. So Remember, Paul and Silas were traveling through Asia, and they end up here in Macedonia, and this is the first church that's in Europe on their journey. And so about Philippi, it was originally named Crenides, which means little fountains, um, after some nearby springs. But it was later renamed Philippi after King Philip II of Macedon, who was actually the father of Alexander the Great. That sounds familiar to us, right? With some ancient history here. So it was named after King Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, and it was also the location of the Battle of Philippi. This happened in 42 BC, and it was part of a Roman civil war between Mark Antony and Octavian on one side, and then Brutus and Cassius on the other side. And these names might be familiar to you because Brutus and Cassius were the leaders in the assassination of Julius Caesar. So there was a big battle that happened here at Philippi in 42 BC. And the Roman 
the Roman Republic, so Mark Antony and Octavian, they were the victors. And I tell you all of this because Philippi got established as a Roman colony after that. Um, it continued as an, a military outpost, and then there were many retired military people who lived there. Um, after this battle, the people became citizens of Rome itself. Even though they're in what we see as northern Greece and what was Macedonia then, they became citizens of Rome. Philippi was an extension of Rome. And so they were proud to take on Roman culture. They spoke Latin. They enjoyed some tax exemptions. And it was a very, very prosperous city with very few Jews. In fact, we know this because there were not enough Jews present to establish a synagogue. You notice that Paul and Silas, they went down to the river where they expected people to be praying. There was no synagogue for them to go to and start talking to Jews first. And the amazing thing is a synagogue only required 10 male heads of household. There weren't even 10 men who were the heads of their household that were Jews in this city to make a synagogue. Um, so it was a very small number of Jews who were here living amongst the Macedonians who acted like Romans, right? And so this Roman pride may also be why in Philippians we're going to read Paul remind the church that they're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven, um, so he appeals to all of these things in them to kind of challenge them and help them to see the kingdom of God. And this brings us to our very last question for this morning. Um, not all done yet, but this is the last W. This is our why. And so we talked about what Paul wrote, but why did he write? The description that I loved reading this week was that this is primarily a missionary thank you note. And I love that because, number one, Paul is super personal and warm in this letter. He loved this church. He helped plant it, and he's visited it, and he's kept in touch with them. Um, some say that this is the most personal letter that Paul wrote at all. I think at all to like a full church. I think maybe the letters to Timothy are a little more personal. Um, but to a whole church, this is the warmest and most um, intimate letter that he writes. But this idea of a missionary thank you note makes me think of all of the people that I've supported over the years in missions. Um, and I know that here at Modesto Foursquare Church, we all think and pray often for the bowlings who are in Costa Rica. Um, and I know that they send updates and post updates on their Facebook pages and, and share about what they're doing. And they came and they visited and they shared what God was doing through them and their missions work there. Um, I think about being a ninth grader in high school and, and writing my own little like, would you, some, would you support me on my Mexico mission trip? And asking for money. <laughs> And then sending out a thank you note to everybody telling them what God did on our one-week mission trip to Mexico every year. Tyler and I have some dear friends, George and Nancy Klein, who are, uh, I think they're both in their 80s. Is that right? 
I think they're both in their 80s. They live in Colorado. But they work with Foursquare Missions International, and they help send missionaries all over the world. And we hope that you'll get to meet them someday soon. But we treasure getting their newsletter goes right up on our fridge every month. Because we want to hear what God's doing through them. And in our last year here at Modesto Foursquare Church, one of the things that I've been most amazed by is hearing the amount of stories there are of people who started here in Modesto and are now serving as missionaries or leaders all over the world and all over the country. I just love thinking about that, about how many people this, this church has touched, not only in those leaders, but in who those leaders are leading. And so Paul's main purpose is to send an update letter, his thank you letter, his, um, yeah, this is my news brief to you at Philippi for, and my gratefulness for your support, your financial support and your prayers and your participation in my ministry. And then secondly, he does want to inform them of his state of imprisonment, right? If you didn't already know, I'm in jail. And then he wants to send back this, this fellow named Epaphroditus. And this guy is somebody that the Philippians had sent over to help Paul and he wants to assure them that as I send Epaphroditus back to you, I want you to know he didn't fail me. He wasn't a bad helper. Um, I want you to know what an excellent help and, and partner he was in me. And I know that some of you knew that he had a near-death illness. So this is, Paul is trying to reassure them that like, even though Epaphroditus came and I'm sending him home to you, it's because he got ill and he almost died and now he's better and I thought he should go home. Right? And so I'm sending him back to you. And lastly, while this letter is very warm and personal, Paul would not be Paul if he didn't have a few concerns. Right? So he has a few concerns for the church there. And he's going to take this opportunity to encourage them and to warn them. He wants to warn them against false teachers. And he's going to encourage them to be in full unity and to be humble and to be full of joy. And I think that Paul's frame of mind in writing this whole letter, amazingly so, from prison, was joy. That was his frame of mind. And because that's where his mind was, that's where I want to leave us today. How can we have that same sort of joyful frame of mind in our lives? So pulling from Acts 16, I have just a few things that I notice that um, happen here in this passage that I think can point us toward joy too. So number one, I think we can be led by the Holy Spirit. I think of Paul and his companions and how they prayed as they journeyed. They went where the Spirit led them, and they didn't go where the Spirit prevented them from going. They knew and were so in tune with the Holy Spirit that um, they knew when they were disallowed, when they were being blocked, when God did not want them going to a certain region, and then they obeyed. <laughs> Sometimes that's kind of hard, right? We might even hear the Holy Spirit whispering to us and 
and we still want to do what we want to do. What if Paul had decided, I hear the Holy Spirit telling me not to go up north to Bithynia, but I really think the people there need the gospel, so I'm going to go. And then what if by the time he got to Philippi, Lydia wasn't at the river? What would have happened? Paul's obedience brought about the planting of this church. So I think that that's one way we can have joy is by knowing that in following the Holy Spirit, you know, we're in tune with God's way. Number two, I think like Lydia, we can be worship, worshipers of God with open hearts. She was at the river. She was already a worshiper of God. But her heart was also open. It was open to hear the message that Paul shared of Jesus. And I think that that attitude of worship and openness to hearing God's voice, it brings us joy too. Number three, we can pray. This one's hard. This one's really hard, guys. We can pray and sing in the middle of our bondage or suffering the way that Paul and Silas did from their prison cells. Prison cell, I think they shared one. Again, they didn't complain or plot revenge. How many of you would be plotting revenge? Yeah, you can raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. I think I might be plotting revenge or like, oh, those people, if they only knew. But that's not what they do. They worship. They pray. They sing. They bring their requests before the Lord. And I think that it's interesting that at least from what we have recorded here, they didn't even appeal to their Roman citizenship or demand to be treated with greater respect or honor until they were released. They didn't say anything about that when they were being flogged. It was after the fact that Paul said, hey, you guys should walk us out yourself. Don't just send us off quietly. We're Roman citizens. But it was after. It was after. What Paul and Silas did when they were in prison was sing hymns and pray. And this led to the jailer and his entire household coming to Christ. We can have joy in the middle of our sufferings. Number four, like the jailer, we can be reminded of what a joy it is to believe in God. Acts 16.34, which we read this morning, says, The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Sometimes I think we live with little joy because we forget what a wonder and a mystery it is that we've been welcomed and redeemed by Jesus. I mean, I think about the entirety of the Bible and how many times. I don't think God says it to be annoying. How many times does God's word repeat the word? Remember. God wants us to rehearse back to ourselves these stories of where he was faithful, where he was good, which he always is good and faithful, right? But we don't always see it. He wants us to continue to tell ourselves that story of his redemption in our lives. And when we do that, when we remember that 
it's a wonder, that it's a mystery, that it's incredible that Jesus brought us into fellowship with him, I think we can have more joy. Number five, the final thing that I see here in Acts chapter 16 is that after encountering Jesus, um, after Jesus, through Paul, brings Lydia and this jailer and their families into, into relationship with himself, I love that the immediate thing they do is, let's get baptized, even if it's four in the morning. And also, Lydia invites Paul and his companions to stay at her home. And the jailer has a meal prepared for them. And so I think about that piece of just like hospitality, immediate baptism and immediate hospitality because now we're all one family. We've got to share something together. Let's share our space. Let's share our food. Those are some of the easiest things we can share. Share our lives, share our space, share our food. And so it's a joy for Lydia and the jailer to open up their lives and their homes because they had something in common with Paul and his companions now. We have Jesus. We have Jesus in common. And doesn't that bring us more joy when we remember we have each other and we are intentional about spending time together? So, this morning, we may not be in prison. You may have people you know who are. We may not be facing the same persecution or the same hardships that Paul faced. But we all can be swept up in the troubles of this life. All of you could have a morning where every single thing is a power struggle, like mine was. And I think that all of us at one point or another, we've said to ourselves what we're going to read. I'm going to give you a little preview. Tyler has this passage, but I wanted to read it too. I'm stealing. I'm stealing from two weeks from now. I think we've all at one point or another said what Paul is going to say in chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. For, me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Maybe you love it here on earth. Maybe everything's perfect here for you. <laughs> but I think most of us, if we're honest, sometimes feel torn between the here and now and heaven. And we know which one is better by far, just like Paul does. And Paul was speaking from a place where his death could be imminent, like they could be behind closed doors, making a decision about whether to release him or to execute him right now. So he knows that he's in this space of, should I stay or should I go? 
And yet he knew that if he remained, and he thought he was going to, which he did, that if he remained, it was for other people's joy and progress in faith. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all be a people of joy in the face of every circumstance? Um, on Tuesday afternoon, Tyler and I, uh, we found out that a mentor and pastor of ours from our time in Manteca had completed his time here on earth. Um, yeah, Pastor Richard Worley, he finished his pastoring at the Manteca Foursquare Church, New Hope. Um, he was my coach for licensing a decade ago, 10 years ago, and he was already in his 70s when he coached me for pastoral licensing. He used those latter years to invest in me. Um, and for me, it's, it's hard to believe that he's not here, like that he's not over there at the church. I'm directionally challenged in this building. South, north, yeah. He's, it's hard for me to believe that he's not like 20 miles north sitting at the Manteca Foursquare Church building, worshiping or sharing a word with the people. Um, he wasn't the lead pastor there, but he was one of the pastors on staff still. It's hard for me to believe that he's, he's with Jesus and he's not there right now. But I know that he used all the last bits of his time to continue and remain for other people's progress and joy in the faith, like Paul said he wanted to do. But I'm so grateful for having someone like Richard who did that in my life. And when I think about him, I think about the joy that he had too. He had a little Paul in him. There were some correcting and some concerns that he would share. But he also like bubbled up the joy in his life. And I think he did many of these things that I mentioned this morning of remembering how broken he was and how much he needed Jesus. Of worshiping through tough circumstances. And so as we move into the actual book of Philippians next Sunday, it's my prayer that we would be deeply moved by Christ's love and experience that full, fullness of joy that Paul is talking about. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And so that's my prayer for us that that would be what we do as well, that we would rejoice as well, that as we read this letter of joy, despite Paul being in prison, that we would learn how to rejoice in our sufferings, to rejoice and remember in the middle of hard things. So I want to invite the worship team back up this morning, and I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to close today. I love this. I love it when the Holy Spirit tells people the same things. We're going to sing this morning. Great choice, Paul. We're going to sing about how God is holy, but also that the strength, our strength is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's what we're going to sing about as we exit today, as we um, move from 
being in this building and meeting as a church and then being the church outside of these walls. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you preserved it and that you made it last and you were with the leaders who put it together and thank you that you were there with Paul as he wrote these words to this church at Philippi and that they can still be an encouragement to us today. I thank you that you haven't left us even without some knowledge of history to get a little context and to understand what the city of Philippi was like, what Paul was like, um, what sorts of challenges and culture was happening. And um, I thank you for giving us that context, both in your word and through history. Lord, most of all today, I pray that we would be a people of joy and that, Lord, you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, that we would not only hear your word and hear your voice, but we would obey you. Lord, that we would go where you tell us to go and do what you tell us to do, and that in doing that, we would experience great joy because we know that you're in it. We know that you're with us. I pray that you would make us worshipers who continue to listen to you with open hearts and hear the message that you have for us. Pray that in the middle of hard things, that we would that we would come to you, that we would come to you first. Even if sometimes our first reaction is complaint, that we would give those complaints to you, and then we would turn to prayer and singing, and a rehearsal of all of the good things you've done in our lives, that we would come to you with gratitude. Lord, I pray that as we experience this joy that we wouldn't do it alone, I pray that we would do it alongside one another, that you would remind us of the fact that we belong to you and we belong to each other. We're your body, we're your church. I pray that you would just challenge us and encourage us in this study of Philippians in the months to come and that each one of us would grow as disciples. That we would grow in our understanding of you and that you would deepen our joy in every single day.